Hi, everyone. This is Jen Fisher, Associate Pastor of Forefront Brooklyn in NYC. If you've been wondering why we call this podcast Midrash NYC, then this is the episode for you. Our senior pastor, Jonathan Williams, and I sat down with our friend, Rabbi Daniel Bronstein, back in November to talk all about the Jewish practice of Midrash, and that led to several more great conversations that you are about to hear. We want to invite you to join the conversation, too. Come meet Dan in person. If you're listening to this podcast before March 1st, 2016, then you're invited to join us for a one-night course on the Old Testament Book of Job. It'll be held at the Forefront NYC office in Midtown Manhattan on Tuesday night, March 1st. But space is limited, so go to ForefrontNYC.com slash Job Course to RSVP today. That's slash J-O-B-C-O-U-R-S-E. All right, without further ado, here is episode four with Rabbi Dan. This is the reason we wanted you to come, uh, because uh, almost a year ago now, you spoke uh, to our church about the book of Ruth. Right. And when you spoke about Ruth, you spoke about um, the different ways of interpreting scripture and and how uh, scripture is ever living and ever breathing and and it just continues. Mm -hmm. And... um, I think everybody on our staff was just, we were thrilled with that. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a departure from maybe what we all grew up with in American Christianity, which says what you have is what you get. Um, and, and there's this instinctual thing inside of us that says, no, it seems like everybody is interpreting scripture in their own way. And what does this look like and how does it feel? So when we started this podcast, we said, we want to explore some of this. Let's call this Midrash NYC. And so why don't you just start by explaining to us the concept of, of the Midrash and, and, and uh, of what it means, especially in Judaism and uh, um, especially in, in interpreting Scripture. Sure. So first thing, uh, Midrash comes from the Hebrew root, uh, just to sort of give you the etymological background here, of Dalet, Resh, Shin, uh, a D, an R, and an SH sound. And the verb, what it means, um, is to uh, inquire, uh, to seek out, uh, and to expound. It has all of those different meanings. And Midrash is the noun form of that uh, verb. Um, and um, uh, just a couple of uh, premises upon which Midrash is based. Um, one, um, the sages, um, the early rabbinical sages, um, who we, we traced uh, back at least 2,000 years ago, but um, probably a lot of what they were doing, a lot of their thinking goes back even further, 2,200 years ago or so. Um, They were operating on the um, premise, number one, that um, every word in the the Jewish Bible, the Torah, every word has significance. Um, uh, The punctuation has significance. And there's nothing extraneous there. So that was one premise they were operating on. Wow, okay. Another premise um, was they believed that the Torah was intertextual. That's the fancy schmancy um, 1990s POMO, postmodern terminology of uh, a way of saying that um, they believed that um, they used to say um, there's no beginning, (coughs) excuse me, um, there's no beginning or end to the Torah that uh, you can take 
one piece of the Bible, say something from Ruth, for example, and couple it with, say, something from Deuteronomy, uh, that they could explain one another or expand huh. on concepts. So they believed in interrelating it. Um, and um, the other thing they were trying to deal with, which um, anybody, um, I should say, um, I can't speak for, I, I, I probably could, you could probably make the general statement that most faiths possess some sort of a sacred text. Sure. And that um, most faiths, and a class that I was just teaching, um, a Muslim was talking about this, how you need really commentary um, to understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. Why? Um, one, and I can think of a couple of examples from the Jewish Bible, we don't even know how to translate certain words. Um, there's, um, you know, there's a couple of examples I can think of that. Um, two... Um, sometimes it seems like there's missing details to a story. Number three, um, sometimes you can take one part of the Bible compared to another part of the Bible, and what you'll find is a seeming contradiction. Um, so why is it saying this here, and why is it saying this there? And how do you reconcile these different things sure so um as the case with other faiths um uh the 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 sages came up with this uh category of literature which is generally called midrash um but just to complicate things and 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 make life more difficult there's many many different categories of midrash (laughs) as well um but midrash um um they considered part of uh i'm talking about the sages here they called it the oral Torah, the oral tradition. So they believed that in a certain sense, whether literally or figuratively, in a certain sense, uh, when Moses received the Ten Commandments in Mount Sinai, he wasn't just getting the Ten Commandments, he wasn't just getting the Jewish Bible, he was getting these other uh, chronologically later sacred texts as well. So, so in some sense, is this, you know... In, in the early stages, you know, you talk about these sages putting together Midrash. Is this to try to explain or make sense of, of contradictions, of, of scripture that can't be interpreted? Of, uh, so that's what they're trying to accomplish then at, at, at this point. That's, that's a big part of it. Okay. Um, I want to give one, if, if I may, give one example. Oh, yeah, please. Um, because it's, um, it, this is an example of Midrash becoming almost as powerful um, and as pungent as the actual biblical text, uh, you have, we just read it in um, our weekly uh, Bible readings a couple weeks ago, uh, the um, Torah portion Lech Lecha, which uh, starts out with Abraham being told by God, go leave your homeland, go leave your father's house, so on and so forth. And so we're introduced to Abraham as an adult. And wait a second, what's the backstory yeah. here? And um, I've actually never thought of that before. Um, how did he, you know, what, what, and how did, you know, there's all kinds of questions you could ask, and how, why was he chosen for this task, and, and what was it? And it's a classic Midrash that the rabbis devised of Abraham uh, as a young man, and it says that uh, in the story, um, that Abraham's father was actually, his line of business was selling idols. And that Abraham, as a young boy, was uh, given this consciousness of what really 
God was all about, that there was a single God. It was a hidden God. It wasn't uh, something you could put into a statue form. So the story goes that Abraham smashed the idols in his father's store while his father was out on an errand or something. And then when he came back, um, uh, Abraham stuck uh, the hammer, whatever device he used to smash the idols, in the hands of one of the idols, of one of the statues. And his father said, uh, what did you do? Or why did you do this? And Abraham said, hey, I didn't do this. It was the idol did it. Pointing out the absurdity of worshiping idols. So that's a story That's a story they came up with. And it's something that's taught to little kids to explain um, it, you know, really early on. That's probably story I you know I could I probably learned when I was like three or something wow okay and it's such a powerful story that you start to think it's part of the Bible um, it isn't there's another example I'll give which is that um, uh, where it talks about Moses was slow of speech right whatever that means mm-hmm. and um, there's a midrash they came up with um, that um, uh, you know how did that what, what does that mean exactly and that uh, Pharaoh was you know, um, he knew something was going to happen, um, something bad was going to happen. He saw the writing on the wall. He was checking out all the Hebrew boys and testing them. And uh, he took Moses um, and uh, put in front of him uh, a pile of gold and a pile of hot coals. And, um, Mo, you know, to see what kind of, you know, was this kid going to be a threat to my kingship? And as a little baby, he was attracted to the gold, but um, an invisible angel moved Moses' hands, who then took the coal and put it in his mouth, which burned his tongue, which made him slow of speech. The angel was protecting him. <laughs> Interesting. I'm doing this in the super shorthand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So those are examples of stories. I like to think of uh, Midrash as, um, and this might be totally anachronistic, because now everyone downloads everything, much to my display. <laughs> right. But back in the good old days, when people were still buying DVDs heavily, mm-hmm. uh, you would have the deleted scenes. Yes. Right? And or the commentary. <laughs> yes. So mm-hmm. Midrash can be sort of like the DVD yeah, version of the... Um, but it also does some other stuff, Midrash. Um, uh, sometimes um, uh, they uh, make a, a, a word play... Uh, with the, as I mentioned, they like to play around with language a lot, and from that wordplay, sometimes they derive uh, legal material, legal principles. But also, quite frankly, um, the rabbis—they don't say they're doing this, but they are doing this. The rabbis are also reinterpreting stuff radically. Yeah. yeah. And the classic example is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, which people—that's a verse people. For, I mean, it's sad that that's one of the best-known verses. Um, in my opinion, it's sad that such a harsh verse yeah. and uh, verse um, and such a harsh thought. And the rabbis say already twenty-two hundred years ago, no, don't read that literally. What it means because um, it doesn't make any sense. If I knock accidentally, Jonathan, if I accidentally knock out your eye with a, a pen, it doesn't really make sense for then you to knock my eye out. <laughs> right. So what they say is you should read that verse as you need to compensate somebody that's a radical you know reinterpret reinterpretation and finally i'm going off the coffee is kicking in but um (laughs) um you know another example of uh what they did was for example where it discusses it references yom kippur in the bible and it should say and you know it says this should be a day of self-affliction or affliction you know afflicting yourself um as i always like to say um 
you know, a way that I could interpret that. Afflicting for me, afflicting myself would be like being tied up and forced to watch uh, Three's Company or another really bad nineteen <laughs> seventy Three's Company, yeah, nineteen seventy sitcom or you know. Uh, or Dukes of Hazard or something, something really... I just, love the Dukes. Though. I'm sorry, I never related to it. I love the Dukes. But they interpreted that to mean that you should afflict yourself on this date. They had to explain that, and they said it should mean um, that you fast. You, do a, you, you, you abstain from food and drink on that day. And you could have, you know, if you think about it, you could, have, you could interpret that, you know, in, in of millions ways. of different yeah, ways. Yeah. But, so anyways, I'm... No, but th- I'm sorry, go ahead, Jen. Well, so they're striving to, to kind of uncover or discuss or whatever the original intent of scripture sort of right um they i mean they might say that this is the original intent Mm -hmm. but they're also what they believed in strongly was that you have to um as jonathan referred to before you have to keep this a living breathing applicable relevant document Mm -hmm. so this has to apply to things that are going on um, in people's lives, or else it's no longer, you know, they, they, the, the, uh, one of the metaphors for the uh, Jewish Bible is that it's a tree of life. Mm. So if you believe that, then it has to be a living thing. If it doesn't, um, if it, if it's not relevant, then you know, how are you going to keep people believing and engaged? That this is that's what sort of what makes it sacred is that it never loses its relevance. Wow. And so maybe when we read, you know, this these commentaries, this Midrash, we're supposed to read it for an understanding of how to have those similar types of living conversations with each other. Absolutely. Not so much the conclusions that they come to, but the example they set and how you how you go about debating and, and contextualizing it, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah, and they, and cool. they might not, uh, you know, they probably wouldn't argue uh, that, um, and by the way, Midrash, you know, it starts 2,200 years ago or so at least, and people are still writing commentaries, right? And people are still mm-hmm. writing midrash, and you can pick up some commentaries from, you know, the higher biblical criticism will say, you know, this verse is, you know, related to this uh, Akkadian tablet, or you know, um, here's the verbs and here's the grammar, but this stuff is is making certain points, um, and and you could have right next to each other in the same book because there's many different commentaries and many different midrashim multiple interpretations of the same verse right next to each other, each dealing with a different thing along the lines of what you said. You know, this could be, some of this could be from somebody's sermon Mm -hmm. that was recorded by their students. So they're talking about, okay, what are the issues in my community Mm -hmm. right now that I need to speak to? And somebody wrote it down. You know, so I have a couple questions. I I feel like there's so much there. I know, right? (laughs) Just so much good stuff. So, you know... I guess, in, in which way is the midrash used? Is it would it be used during a um, you know a sitting uh, together in a study, or is it used on a Saturday when you're gathering together? Um, in what ways do you use the midrash? And then, I guess the second part of that is: is there open discourse on on whether this is uh, given to us by God or whether this is ridiculousness or? Um, well, I mean, too, um, you might, um, some of the Midrash was written, you know, uh, comes out of, uh, I, I spent, um, with a group of people about six years going through, uh, entire, uh, Midrash from first, second century rabbis. Oh my goodness. And that, what that seems to be, and that was great fun, by the way. Yeah, I can imagine. It yeah. really, for me, it was fun. <laughs> um, that seems to be 
the conversations of a group of rabbis that were written down by their students arguing about over with among each other. Okay. So among scholars. But there's other types of midrashim which come straight from, as you mentioned, like a sermon that yeah. you might get on a Saturday, a Shabbat morning, a Sabbath morning. So, um, so there's a you know it's used by the um, sort of the the top scholars, but also uh, could come out of someone's um, sermonic homiletical material okay. during services. So, and then in terms of whether it comes from God or not, um, that's pretty much the. Um, I'm oversimplifying things here, but if you uh, w- within the different uh, within the spectrum of Jewish practice, you know um, that would be my measure of what separates um, Orthodox Jews, and and mind you that Orthodox Judaism, um, which is a insufficient term because it encompasses such a wide spectrum of 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 people. Um, from modern orthodoxy to uh, what's called ultra or fervently orthodox, Haredi Judaism, um, but orthodoxy would argue that um, all of this was given directly by God okay. to to Moses, and non-orthodox Jews like myself would say that um, this is divinely inspired, um, and that. Um, uh, it 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 uh, this is a result uh, or this is the creation of people grappling with scripture and trying to um, preserve the sanctity of it uh, in intent and in application, but also believing that human beings had a hand in it. Wow. Okay. Um, and um, and that could be everything from uh, the fact that there's certain cases where we can you know see. Uh, after all, a scribe made certain mistakes in certain places, which is happens, or or maybe you know, um, you know, we can we can see in one. I mean, I don't want to go into the whole biblical criticism thing, mm-hmm. but we can see other human footprints or handprints on on the biblical sure. text. Yeah. So there's a, and even some within more modern orthodoxy would say, well, there's human involvement as well, right. So if that's the case, and I like what you say, you say you say it's divinely inspired, right? So, you know, it sounds like when you're talking about orthodoxy, you're talking about something that's been set for all time, and so what you get is a continuation of something that's already been set. Uh, when you talk about it, it sounds like you're saying God is continually working within the human story to to bring life to these texts. Um, is, I mean, does that mean in my, in my... Right, I would just say there's also the separate ad, a category of halakha, which, which, it, it, which means law. I mean, literally it means the way, but it just means law. So law, you can, you can law is always changing, right? right? I remember, just to give an easy example, um, I remember um, a ruling, a rabbinical ruling a ways back from Orthodox authorities, don't smoke, it's bad for you. You know, that's like something... That they uh, much to the dismay of certain people, sure, but yeah. Um, yeah. you know, so that's something you know. So it can develop, and changing the law can be difficult. But that's something always developing the legal application, okay, as opposed to interpretation. I see. Um, but um, I'm sorry. The second part of your question was yeah, oh, the living. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so that's very embedded. I mean, what you're referring to, um, and that's very embedded in Judaism is the notion that humanity. Uh, is in partnership with God, um, and um, you know I know for me that's that's how I feel. Speaking as a you know uh, in quotes a liberal Jew, you know that um, 
Uh, I'm just saying in quotes because, you know, all these terms have almost been... They're all relevant now. Uh, yeah. Um, or, yeah. But that we're, you know, that God, this notion that God gives us certain um, uh, raw materials and that we have to work with God um, and, and find um, God doesn't just make things happen, that we have to make things happen as well. And part of that is... Um, resting, uh, bringing out meaning from the texts and making and from the traditions and making sure that they're still relevant. And then there's, you know, obviously there's there's huge amounts of disagreement how far sure. how far you go. I mean, um, uh, he's still a rabbinic student uh, uh, who I worked with. Um, it, it really annoyed me actually. He um, was talking about Joseph and the amazing Technicolor. Sure, of whatever, <laughs> whatever that. Uh, I mean, I guess I have a. A general prejudice against musicals. Um, um, I don't particularly like them, except for the, yeah. the Mel Brooks or Marx Brothers versions of musicals. Yeah. But he was saying that was like a modern midrash, and I was saying, no, it's not. That was done. I mean, it's you could say that's art, but it's also done for um, a generation of income. To yeah. me, that's not exactly. And, and he argued with me, and I think he's wrong, but, you know. Um, but you're allowed to disagree. But, but we're allowed to argue with yeah. each other, yes. Mm-hmm. But that would be like, you know, an example of, of you know, to me, that's not necessarily, who is that, Andrew Lloyd Webber? Yeah. Or, mm-hmm. um, um, to me, that's not necessarily divinely inspired, yeah. although that's but using. But I'm sure there's, you know, obviously this is one. There would maybe be a, Weber Rabbi agreed with mm-hmm. me. Yeah, or yeah. maybe, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to back up and ask you a little bit more about some of these these vocabulary words sure. that you're using, because I was reading this book about um, the parables and just the Jewish traditions and Christian interpretation, right? Um, and how much we get from this in understanding Jesus, because he taught in some of the ways that the rabbis right. did, and and all of this, and we can learn so much from understanding the Jewish right. traditions, right? Um, so, like you mentioned, the word halakha. And then there's this other word that I learned, Haggadah, if I'm saying it right. Haggadah. And can you explain the difference between the two and just kind of how they play out and like how the rabbis would have taught sure. um, in the early... So um, a lot of that um, is um, you have these different uh, categories of literature, as you just referred to. Agadah, which is related to the word Haggadah. And Haggadah is the book that we use during Passover. That's the same word as Agadah, by the way. Huh. And Haggadah means the telling or the narration. If you go through the that's Passover cool. Seder, mm-hmm. that's it's you're, you're going through the narrative. Um, uh, Agadah, you're right, it should be translated as parable. Um, and some types of, and it, and it overlaps with Midrash. And I wish I could, um, the difference is, is that sometimes some Midrash is more legal. And overlaps with the more legal or the halachic, the halacha material. So halacha is like, okay, how do you set up the seder plate? You know, how do you how do you do that? Or, you know, when do you figure out when sundown is? Or, you know, what food is kosher? What isn't? Um, you know, what prayers do you need to say? And the parable is to you know the, the agadic material is to explain certain stories and the here's here's another complicating factor you have the book the talmud which is about 1500 mm-hmm. years old which a lot of people think that the editing was never really completed mm-hmm. um but um the talmud is a mix of the uh, parable the agadah and midrash on the one hand and the legal material on the other hand it's all intermixed together so when you're studying it 
it gets like, wait a second, why are they going off <laughs> on this? And there's also no punctuation, and there's an argument about how to punctuate certain stuff. Um, although there's traditions about how to you, how it should be punctuated. So um, just to, to step back, you know, really the formative period is um, 2,000 years ago. That's really the most important uh, to think about contemporary Judaism. That's when it's formed. Um, out of that period and out of those early sages, and I would say they numbered in, in at most the triple digits, maybe the double digits, you have the first Jewish code of law, which is called the Mishnah. Mm-hmm. And all of that, all of that um, had been... Um, that material was all memorized up until the year 200 oh, wow. in the common era. They didn't want to write it down because they wanted the legal material to be as fluid as possible because they were reacting to changes once wow. you write it down. So they didn't even write it down until 200. And that's also the same era that the Midrash uh, comes out of. And the Talmud, which is you know then another 300 years later, is the Mishnah and commentary on the Mishnah. And then there's commentary on that commentary. So if you go to a place page of Talmud, you'll see it all mixed together. And I think that's why, you know, there's there's like the straight codes of law, and then there's the Talmud, which makes, mixes parable and midrashic material with legal material. And throughout history for the last, you know, um, uh, you know, 1,500 years, it's been an argument about what you should focus your study on. My goodness. Yeah. Um, and people, so you know, yeah, yeah, so, um, but you're, you're, um, my background is actually full confessions here um, uh, is in uh, Jewish history more than Midrash, although I use Midrash a lot when I'm teaching and when I study. But um, historians um, see Jesus, uh, Jewish historians, and uh, as well as a lot of Christian historians, see Jesus as very much part of that rabbinic tradition and mm-hmm. Jesus speaking in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And using the Bible in a certain way to teach and to explain things, so that makes absolutely yeah. a, a yeah, lot of sense. So cool. So I want you to tell us more about that. And also, I was realizing since Jewish history is your background, like as you're telling us all these in the timeline of it all, does that mean that first century, second century, this is around the same time that, say, the early Christian church is getting started as well? Absolutely. And these New Testament letters are getting written and all that. Right. So both of these things are all happening at the same time. Can you yeah. tell us, kind of, just give us some imagery and insight into... Um, well, I mean, as far as we understand it, um, and the way that it was explained to me, which I think is not a bad way, is to think about um, you know this period of land of Israel under Roman rule. Right. And, and religiously, all these different parties... Uh, the way that we often describe it as different parties, um, religious, political, or, you know, religious and political. So there's different, there's a bunch of different Jewish parties at that time. There's the, the Sadducees, the priestly class, um, who um, by the time of Jesus are heavily tainted because of their association with the Romans. And, um, and they were very... Um, that was a hereditary office. That wasn't a meritocracy. Okay. And in the rabbinic literature, which might be hyperbole of that era, they sort of describe them as being, you know, sort of uneducated. And really, the rabbis really were carrying the heavy load. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, but the priests were all about the temple, which was destroyed in the year seventy. Right. And obviously, they're totally neutralized, although you still honor the priests, people who descend from that background, you still honor them. 
But um, that was, you know, without the temple, their power wanes considerably. And the rabbis start doing things like, and we don't really, people are arguing about the, the history because we don't really know, but somehow um, for a long time it was thought that the um, synagogue develops uh, actually much earlier than the destruction of the Second Temple. Hmm. And there's different possible examples. But the other thing that the rabbis were doing was they were establishing yeshivot, yeshivas, or houses of learning, or Batei Midrash, mm-hmm. where it was all about learning. It wasn't about what class you were from or what part of the country you were from. It was all about being willing to sit down and engage in a certain type of study. So those are so there's the priests and the, the rabbis and the Pharisees, huh. or the Pharisees, are the same thing as the rabbis, probably, mm-hmm. um, although they get sort of a, a raw, you know... This, um, <laughs> they get a bit of a in, raw deal. Interpretation. Yeah, yeah. Unfairly, I think. Then you have um, then you have a lot of um, more uh, what I would call apocalyptic groups who are saying, you know, because it was a totally chaotic, crazy society, similar to ours in some ways, I would say, um, where there's a lot of upheaval and chaos and uh, suffering. So you have the apocalyptic groups of various sorts who are saying the end is near, we need to, and there were certain Jewish groups as mm-hmm. well. Then you have, um, it's important to mention, um, the Gnostics, of course. who impact both Judaism and Christianity yes. in different ways, who are dualists. I always say if you want a great uh, um, Gnostic film, watch the Star Wars films, because you have the, the dark side and the light side, mm-hmm. right? That sort of dualistic Just, worldview. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you have these other groups uh, who are called Jewish Christians or Christian Jews. And some of them were probably um, Jewish people who believed that Jesus was a great teacher and followed his teachers, but at the same time they were still following Jewish law. And then some of them, obviously followers of Paul, take a different stance and they say, well, we don't have to, you know, the Jewish law, you know, you have to be circumcised of the heart, mm-hmm. taking from that, you know, quote, that concept. And you don't necessarily have to follow Jewish law. We're, you know, we're we have a new uh, covenant now, right? We right. have a new tradition. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of overlap. I mean, if you were to go to, um, I was just reading um, uh, because I'm crazy. I was just reading about, uh, you know, uh, the uh, I've been reading a lot about the different primaries going on right now. <laughs> right. And yeah. um, I read a lot. I'm really interested in politics. And I was reading about like different people in the Democratic and, and Republican parties, you know, how certain candidates appeal to certain constituencies within that party, but when it gets to the nomination, you know, somehow you have to bridge all these things and make different mm-hmm. coalitions. And just in the Republican Party, there's people who are like economic conservatives and then there's social conservatives, and they don't always overlap on every issue. So I think that it's safe to say that in terms of Jews Early, you know, uh, that era of Jews and that era of Christians, there was enormous diversity. Sometimes people freak out, uh, you know, different pieces of the Dead Sea Scrolls are translated and people are like, oh, wait a second, I didn't know, you know, this was going on. This sounds a lot like something in the Christian Bible. This sounds a lot like, well, mm-hmm. it's like, well, of course, because all these different things are going on Absolutely. and influencing each other and happening in real time. Yeah. And in response to each other. or yeah, In response like, to each yeah. other. And, you know, so I think that, I don't know if that answers your... No, it did. That's so it's a It's an attempted reconstruction yeah. as far as we've got at this it point. it kind of sets the scene of understanding, you know, like, like I just spoke on Colossians 
and it's this understanding of why Paul is writing to these people in class I saying hold on you don't have to be circumcised right. don't listen to that you know other tradition like that's kind of stalling your thinking about this new covenant basically right. um, because that's not what we're going for as, right. as followers of Christ I guess Right, um, who would want to, uh, it's not like exactly something adults want to do is go right? get circumcised, right? And I know. That's I think we, it's fair to make yeah. that generalization. That was, that was one of those things that Justin Lee said the other night, that he's like, for how much we don't like to talk about sexuality, the Bible is just full of conversations about circumcision, especially. Oh, yeah, a lot. And it's just like, like we are talking about sexuality. We There's just... a lot. There's a lot in there. They're not, uh, they're not shy. Yeah. <laughs> Poor guys. So... Um, well, it's not that bad in eight days, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? I mean, Abraham had it much harder, 99 years old, yeah. and Ugh. self, uh, and, and did it himself. So, <laughs> you know, um, I think that would be a, a, a much worse situation than. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's serious <laughs> business. Oh, boy. And, and in, so, that kind of sets the scene for us to understand a, a little bit about, I mean, because we're talking about post. Christ's death and resurrection, but if we back up to the world that he entered into, um, especially because you know we're we're having this conversation right now in November, right. we're going to go into Advent soon, um, and thinking about that more, I guess it kind of starts to help us understand what kind of teacher he was and how like the significance of the culture he was coming into right. and doing what he was doing and preaching the way he was. But also, like, I've been learning more and more about um, this idea of being a messianic candidate. And so, um, and that tradition uh, for the Hebrew people, um, right? Uh, and kind of what who Jesus was in that um, as a p- potential candidate and all that. Can you please will you tell us more about that so I can stop? <laughs> so no, so there's a so there's you're right. So then there's there's this messianic idea in Judaism, and it's related to um, what's called tikkun olam, which means fixing the world. Um, this gets back to the idea, by the way, about being in partnership with God. Mm-hmm. The idea that, you know, as we all know, there's a lot of uh, suffering and problems in the world. And um, the Jewish idea is that you have to, um, human beings have to um, uh, enable the arrival of the Messianic age. Although within Judaism, there's certain, there have been certain um, streams of thought which were more um, apocalyptic and saying, you know, it's it's there's bad stuff that's going to happen, and then Messiah will come. But the main thing, the main line in Judaism is that we have to bring, we being human beings, have to bring about the messianic age by fixing the world, and then the Messiah right. will come and will be a descendant of the house of David. Mm-hmm. And of course, with Jesus, you have those connections that are that are made, and that um, it just doesn't happen. Um, Rabbi Akiva, who um, was end of first, early second century thereabouts, who is one of the greatest rabbis of all time, he, um, there were two major, a couple of minor, but two major revolts against Rome, and I think the second one was about 135 or so, and um, it was led by a guy named Bar Kokhba. Um, He gave himself that name, it means son of a star, you Mm -hmm. know. Sort of a Donald Trump-esque move (laughs) um, in terms of branding. And um, was trying to make the argument that, um, you know, he was the Messiah. And um, the other rabbis, most rabbis, called him Bar Kosiba, son of a liar. Uh, You know, but Akiva, you know, despite his greatness, went along with 
this idea went along with the revolt. And uh, one of his colleagues said to him, you know, um, Akiva, the grass will be growing through our cheeks before the Messiah comes, meaning we're going to be long dead before the Messiah comes. So uh, one of my teachers called it channeled messianism, the idea that um, this is going to take a long, long time before it happens. I did just hear yesterday, um, I just have to throw this in, that Michelle Bachman said that uh, a lot of the the ex-congresswoman from Minnesota Mm -hmm. said yesterday, uh, October the 7th, I believe, or (laughs) 8th, uh, 2015, that all this violence was going on in Jerusalem because the Messiah is about to come. So I hope she's right because if the Messiah is <laughs> about to come, then maybe I won't uh, have to pay certain bills. Or, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry to make fun of her, but um, so in Judaism, the idea is really that this is something you and you know, the prophet Elijah also is the harbinger of the Messiah. Really? There's a story that he's going to lead the Messiah yeah, into the gates of Jerusalem. But Elijah is a really interesting figure, right? Because he doesn't die. He ascends to heaven on the chariot of fire, whatever that means. And he shows up on Passover, right right towards the end of the Seder. You you symbolically welcome him to your house. Uh, because that's uh, Passover is connected with this idea, Jewish idea of redemption, which is one of three major themes in Judaism. It's creation, revelation, and redemption. Mm-hmm. And although chronologically, redemption happens second before revelation at sinai um in our prayers redemption is always number three hmm. it's always last because we're still working towards a redeemed world mm. does that answer I don't that's know. that's incredible that's that's yeah. really good stuff yeah, it's it's so interesting to me you know that that as a church you know a, a christian church that you know obviously we we do believe in in jesus christ and the death and resurrection of, uh, of christ but uh there are so many incredible parallels um you know, I, I think, you know, uh, you talk about, you know, ushering in the Messiah, we're working in partnership with God, where we would say we're ushering in the kingdom of God right. for the return of the Messiah. You right. Know, you know, there's, right. There's so many incredible parallels right. there. And our time's almost up, but, you know, being a teacher, being a rabbi, a professor, if people are going to start to tackle some of these scriptures, they're brand new at this. They might not have the same historical background that you that you have or that, that many people have. Where do you tell them to start? Where where do they start with this? Um, um, well, um, one thing, um, you know, there's a great book um, called, uh, I think it's called, uh, I wish I had written this down, but it's by a professor at Brandeis University, Mark Brettler, uh, B-R-E-T-T-L-E-R. We're all getting out our phones right now. Who gave me a very, I have to mention, and uh, he gave me a very, uh, I think he was gratuitously uh, difficult with me when I took his class uh, about certain <laughs> about certain papers that I handed in to Anyways, he, um, if he hears this, but he wrote a great book called, uh, I think it's called Who Wrote the Bible? And he is coming at this from, um, and this, this idea of how to read the Bible Jewishly, he's coming at it from an Orthodox perspective. Okay. And he's a modern biblical scholar. So um, that's a great book to read. There's also, um, in terms of uh, understanding um, the ways in which the, uh, the, the Bible is organized, uh, called The Art of Biblical Narrative by Robert Alter, which was written probably in the 1980s. Or, know that one, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's a great book. It's physically gigantic, and it's one of those things... You know, I'm re- I'm resisting. You know, I don't know how you feel. But I'm like resisting things like Kindle and reading mm-hmm. stuff online. But there's <laughs> a enough. book called the Book of Legends, 
and um, it's 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 basically there were two uh, a couple of great early uh, modern Hebrew scholars. I'm talking about late 19th century. It's two guys who came out of the traditional world themselves, um, but uh, left it but were still connected to the tradition. What they did is they went through all the different Midrashic literature, all the Talmud, I mean, a huge, massive project, and they reorganized it according to topic. Wow. And it was translated uh, in the 90s by a great rabbi named William T. Browdy. It was called The Book of Legends. Wow. So, you know, if you want to see, and some of it's really quite psychedelic, you know, some of these, <laughs> these Midrashim, you know, all kinds of really wild stories, but... Uh, it was uh, Chaim Nachman Bialik and Chaim Ravnitsky who organized this book. Um, and um, that that would just be a storehouse of these wonderful stories and different interpretations. Um, and then, of course, there's something called uh, Midrash Rabbah, which means the complete Midrash, although it's not complete. Because <laughs> there's still more. Because it's never going to yeah, be right, complete. It's never, yeah, it's never complete, but that was organized. I can't, that's more recent. Um, still several hundred years ago, but that they went through all the different books of the Jewish Bible and sort of tried to organize all the different commentaries. Wow. So that's um, um, so whatever. It's a, I'm a, I'm I'm not being very enticing right now. It's a big it's a big task. But um, um, oh, there's another book I want to mention, just called Back to the Sources. Back to the Sources by uh, I think it's um, I think it's Barry Holtz, but it's definitely the last name is Holtz. H-O-L-T-Z, and what he does in this great book, which might unfortunately be out of print, but you can still find it, I know, uh, on Amazon, things like that, he goes through all the different types of traditional Jewish religious literature, so there's a chapter on Bible, there's a chapter on Halakha, mm. chapter on Talmud, chapter on Midrash, and sort of explains all this stuff. I see, I see. And yeah. that's a really great source, and he's a great teacher. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for being oh, here. Oh, you're very welcome. I, I, I think, I think the thing I love most is that this is all. I feel like we just barely scratched the surface. Yeah. There's so much depth to this, and I think that's why we wanted to call this podcast Midrash NYC because we, we, we want, we want to say that hey, there's a lot of depth to this. There's a lot of exploring and and uh, and you, you just bring it back to what you said, asking God to partner with us uh, in, in bringing about you know the redemption, you know. Of this world, and and if we can continue to do that, you know, being Jewish, Christian, whatever it may be, right. uh, good things will happen. Um, yeah, I want to bring him back and have just a whole other podcast simply on like the rabbinic teaching, and so we can understand how Jesus taught, like through parables and through just all the challenging things that he did that are actually anchored in. Jewish tradition and styles of teaching. That's what we should do next. All right, we'll do, let's let's do that next. I've already asked him to come and do the Book of Job. Well, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm, yeah, con right. I'm convinced that uh, dialogue such as this and conversation such as this hastens redemption. Ah, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, absolutely, absolutely. And it's fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it hastens redemption. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for your time. You're very welcome. It's my uh, honor. We look forward to having you back. Look forward to it. And uh, yeah, thanks. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening today. You're always welcome to email us with questions or thoughts at info at midrashnyc.com. And if you want to attend the Job course with Rabbi Dan, or if you're looking for a community committed to asking good questions and figuring out this life of faith, justice, and love with Jesus, then we invite you to check out Forefront. We have two locations, one in Manhattan and one in Brooklyn. 
You can go to our site at ForefrontNYC.com to find our blog, our services, events, and courses. Thanks so much, and we hope to connect with you guys again real soon.